I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and today we are in our third in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. And today we're going to look at an overview of cellular respiration, which is the portion of our energy system that we need to use oxygen for, the oxygen coming from the air that we breathe. And the reason we're going to start here is because this is the point at which any source of fuel shares its metabolism in common. In other words, we could eat protein, we could eat carbohydrate, we could eat fat, and each of these will have specific metabolic pathways that all lead to the point that we're starting with today. And then everything else is shared in common. So let's look at the commonalities between our different sources of fuel first, and then later we'll talk about the differences. And in the course of doing that, we'll be able to talk about, does it matter whether we eat this or that? What's shown on the screen is the overall goal of the catabolic portion of metabolism known as catabolism. And this is how we get useful energy from food. We're showing sugar on the screen. This could as easily be protein or fat. And by and large, what we're talking about in the body for sugar is actually glucose. There's a bag of sugar, which if it's in your cabinet is probably gonna be sucrose, but those details aren't that important. The important thing is the overall reaction is the same in your body as if you set a bag of sugar on fire. If you set a bag of sugar on fire, then you're going to take the sugar and you're going to take the carbons and release them as carbon dioxide. And left over from that, you're going to have water. You won't really notice the water because it'll evaporate and you won't really see the carbon dioxide. It's going to be in there with the smoke. All the energy, though, is lost as heat. You couldn't do anything useful with it because you didn't burn the sugar in a way that directly coupled the release of energy to reactions or processes that require inputs of energy. Now, this combustion reaction is also almost the same as what you do to octane in your gasoline when you drive a car. And octane is a slightly different molecule, but still, you're ripping it apart using oxygen, releasing carbon dioxide and water. If you think about how the car uses fuel, if you wanted to release all the energy at once, and I don't recommend you do this at home, but if you were to release all the energy at once, you would light the gas tank on fire and the car would blow up. Once again, when you release all the energy at one time, good luck getting from point A to point B. Instead, what you do in that car is you slowly burn tiny amounts of fuel at a time. And it's just such a small amount that the machinery is able to very effectively harness the energy in that small amount of combustion and use it. 
to get to point A, from point A to point B. So in our bodies, what we're doing is something very similar to that, only we're doing it way more efficiently than the car. Like we said in the first lesson, that cars may be harnessing about 20% of the energy. We're harnessing 50%, but we actually can't harness that much more than 50% because we have to release large amounts of heat into the environment to compensate for the order being created within us. So we're operating way more efficiently than the car, but we're taking a similar approach in the sense that if you look on the left here, we are taking oxygen from the atmosphere and we're releasing a little bit and we're releasing a little bit and we're releasing a little bit and so on and so forth. And each time we release a tiny bit, we get a tiny amount of energy that can then be harnessed effectively and efficiently to do work. And we have these tiny little activation energies at each point that our enzymes can allow us to go forward using the energy of body heat alone. In burning the bag of sugar, we have this enormous activation energy that we need with to overcome by lighting it on fire. And if we had to light ourselves on fire, mm, I think it's pretty obvious why that would be a bad approach to energy metabolism. So when you look at why are these processes so complicated, one of the basic reasons is that they have to be series of many small steps in order to, number one, allow the activation energy to, to be met with the tools we have at our disposal, and number two, to allow the amount of energy released to actually be harnessed efficiently. As we'll also see as time goes on, having many, many steps also allows us enormous flexibility of what to do with those fuels. Because it's very frequent that we don't actually want to take something and fully oxidize it for energy. We actually want to break it down partly and then go do something else with it. And so that's a benefit we'll explore in later lessons. When we're looking at what all fuels share in common when they're broken down, we start with acetyl-CoA. Now, whenever we talk about acetyl-CoA goes into this pathway, acetyl-CoA goes into that pathway, what we really mean is that the acetyl group goes into the pathway. CoA, or coenzyme A, is just the carrier that brings the acetyl group from one place to another. And the acetyl group is really a derivative of acetate. So we can think of acetate as riding on the CoA train. If we look at the structure of coenzyme A, we can see that it has pantothenate in it. That's vitamin B5. This right here accounts for the role of vitamin B5 in energy metabolism. It has ADP in it, adenosine diphosphate. Why is that there? Actually, that's kind of a curiosity. It's kind of a mystery. If you look across all the different energy carriers, they all have ADP there, and we don't really know why, but there's a hypothesis that this is actually a, it's sort of like a vestigial organ of these carriers, just kind of like some people have thought our appendix is 
a mark of past evolution. That's the current thinking with the energy carriers as well. Anyway, we have some other things going on here. We have sulfur at the end. That sulfur is what's going to bind to anything that coenzyme A can carry. And right now what it's carrying is the acetyl group. If you look in the upper right corner, what you see is a space filling model of coenzyme A attached to the acetyl group. And one thing that you can notice from this is the acetyl group is tiny compared to CoA. CoA is massive. And well, that's kind of what you would expect if you're viewing CoA as the train on which acetate as the passenger is being carried. Any vehicle that you step into is going to be much larger than you, especially a train. Now, CoA can carry a lot of things, not just acetyl groups. And there's a general pattern shown on the bottom where any kind of carboxylic acid, which is something that has a carboxyl group, this pattern of C double bonded to O bound to OH, any carboxylic acid can be bound to coenzyme A through dehydration synthesis. And when you take an OH off of a carboxylic acid, what you have left is called an acyl group. And if you take a carboxylic acid and you take the OH here and the H from the sulfhydryl group or SH group of coenzyme A, that H will combine with the OH to make water. And what you'll be left with is an acyl-CoA. Now, this R can be anything. So there are many different acyl-CoAs. Acetyl-CoA shown at the top is just one of them. And that's where this R is replaced by the acetyl group. So acetic acid could be bound to coenzyme A through dehydration synthesis, and you'd get acetyl-CoA. If you were to hydrolyze that bond, the water would come in, break it apart, an H from the water would reconstitute the SH group of CoA, the sulfhydryl group, and the OH would reconstitute the carboxyl group of acetic acid. But that acyl-CoA could be many other molecules. As we look later at fatty acid metabolism, we'll see that if we had palmitic acid, a 16-carbon fatty acid, it would be a carboxylic acid. It could be attached to CoA through dehydration synthesis. It would be called palmitil-CoA, and that would be a specific form of acyl-CoA, just like acetyl-CoA is a specific form of acyl-CoA. Now, in metabolism, we're not actually binding acetic acid itself to coenzyme A usually. Overwhelmingly, what we're doing is through complex metabolic pathways, we're stripping off two carbon units from glucose or from fatty acids or from certain amino acids. And we never actually have free acetate floating around. What we have is this two carbon unit transferred from one intermediate onto CoA to generate acetyl-CoA. 
And it's a good thing that we don't have lots of acetate floating around because acetate is very volatile. If you look on the left, you can see vinegar, which is about 5% acetic acid. And vinegar has a very distinct smell to it. The reason it has that smell is because of its acetic acid content. Acetic acid can't smell like anything unless it evaporates from the vinegar, travels through the air, and gets into your nose. To the right of that, we have 100% acetic acid that's used in the laboratory. This doesn't just smell, it stinks. When I was in graduate school, we used to use that in the laboratory a lot, and if you didn't open it directly under a chemical fume hood, then within seconds, someone in the next room over around the corner would say, hey, what's that smell? It doesn't just smell, it stinks. And again, it reflects the fact that acetate is so volatile. Why is it volatile? Well, part of the reason is because it's so small. If you think within your body or within a jar of acetic acid that's on a countertop or wherever, you have some homogeneous amount of energy that can move any of the molecules in that jar or in our body, any of the molecules in our cell or our blood, and they're all kind of moving around with that constant amount of energy. The molecules that are smallest, that have the least mass, are going to get pushed around more forcefully by the same amount of energy. Think, for example, if you were to throw a Nerf ball, or you were to throw a bowling ball, or you were to throw a couch. As you go up in mass, you're going to have a harder and harder time making that thing move. The Nerf ball, you're, if you apply a small amount of energy, you can probably throw it across the room. The bowling ball, you apply the same amount of energy to it, tiny amount, it's not going to really go anywhere. The couch, you're going to go, you're going to ask for help. I hope you're not throwing couches around, but if you were, you would probably need help. So when we have something that's super, super small in the body, and because of that and whatever other chemical characteristics, it's really, really volatile, it's really important to have a way of weighing it down. In the last two slides ago, we saw that coenzyme A is massive compared to the acetyl group. And so one of the benefits of attaching the acetyl group to CoA is that it prevents it from evaporating. Imagine if we didn't do that, we would have two serious problems on our hands. One is that if all the acetate is evaporating and going through our lungs and we're breathing it out into the atmosphere, we're going to be really tired all the time because we're not going to be able to derive any energy from that. The second problem would be social. If you constantly smell like vinegar, it's going to be kind of hard to get people to want to spend time with you. The other benefit of coenzyme A is that it helps direct the acetyl group into the downstream metabolic pathways. Now, if we look at the acetyl group, what are we going to do with it? Well, we know that the overall goal of metabolism is to take carbons and release them as carbon dioxide, the purpose of which is to take the energy in the chemical bonds and bring it to the electron transport chain to harness it to make ATP. 
And in the first lesson, we saw that ATP synthase uses the energy in a hydrogen ion gradient. So we're also going to want hydrogen ions. If you look here at the acetyl group, you see that there's two carbons. We need to release those carbons as two carbon dioxide. Where we're actually getting our energy from is from the electrons in the acetyl group once they're ripped apart. The whole process of going through the TCA cycle, through the electron transport chain, is one where these electrons are progressively going from higher energy states to lower energy states. As they do that, they release energy. So we can say thermodynamically this happens spontaneously. The delta G is negative. It lowers the order and it releases the energy. Now, what exactly does it mean for an electron to be high energy versus low energy? Well, like we talked about before, there are various attractive forces of nature and things spontaneously move towards things that they're more attracted to. So all we're really doing is moving the electrons from things that have low affinity for them to things that have higher affinity for them. Now, it's pretty difficult to look at a molecule and predict how tightly it's going to want to hold on to electrons, but we can measure it. We measure it with the redox potential, which is the potential of something to act as an oxidizing agent expressed in millivolts. The way we've defined the scale of the redox potential is to have an arbitrary zero point. And so things with the lowest redox potentials are highly negative. Things with the highest redox potentials are highly positive. Things that have highly negative redox potentials have low affinity for electrons. They easily donate electrons. They easily become oxidized and they're strong reducing agents. Things that have very high redox potentials have very high affinities for electrons. They easily accept electrons. They easily become reduced and they are strong oxidizing agents. Electrons spontaneously move from things that have highly negative redox potentials to things that have highly positive redox potentials. Our acetyl group is going to be carried on the CoA train first to the TCA cycle. The TCA cycle is where we rip apart the carbons to release them as carbon dioxide, and then we have to bring the hydrogen ions and electrons to the electron transport chain. These hydrogen ions and electrons get loaded onto vehicles in the same way the acetyl group was loaded onto coenzyme A. Only here, maybe we could think of the vehicles as buses, like the way you would take a train somewhere and then get off and have to get on the local transportation system. And the buses are NAD plus and FAD. NAD plus, again we see ADP. We also see ribose. This is part of that evolutionary mystery. But what we see also is niacin. Niacin is vitamin B3. And we'll see niacin in some other contexts, but NAD plus is one of the two key things that niacin is doing in energy metabolism. 
Our other bus is FAD, and you can see FAD over here. It has riboflavin, which is vitamin B2. We'll see riboflavin in some other places in energy metabolism, but this right here is accounting for one of the major contributions of riboflavin to energy metabolism. Again, we see ADP. Again, this evolutionary mystery of why ADP is showing up over and over again in all of these different energy carriers. When these buses are empty, they're in their oxidized state. That's when they're NAD plus or FAD. The passengers are hydrogen ions and electrons. To add an electron to something is to reduce it. So when the passengers are on the bus, then these energy carriers are in their reduced states. Overall, NAD plus can carry two hydrogen ions and two electrons. One of those electrons neutralizes the positive charge. The other electron helps glue one of the hydrogen ions to the molecule as NADH. One of those hydrogen ions is left over and just floats around in the solution. FAD also can carry two hydrogen ions and two electrons to make FADH2. Any compound that carries electrons can be thought of as a redox couple. We call it a couple because it can exist in an oxidized state, for example, NAD+, or a reduced state, for example, NADH. So we say that NADH slash NAD plus is a redox couple. When we talk about a redox potential, we refer to that pair, that redox couple, and talk about the potential for it to go from its oxidized state to its reduced state. The redox potential of the NADH couple is negative 320 millivolts. The redox potential of the FADH2 FAD redox couple is negative 220 millivolts. If we come back to this slide, we could say that NADH is somewhere over here. It's more highly negative. FAD is still negative, but it's less negative, so it's over here. That means that NADH is a stronger reducing agent than FADH2 is. We want to keep this point in mind later when we look at the electron transport chain because it has a strong impact on how they enter the electron transport chain. Shown here is a general overview of the electron transport chain. We can see, first of all, that we have a membrane. This is called the inner mitochondrial membrane because actually the mitochondria has two membranes. Although not shown in the diagram, there's actually a second membrane right at the top of this diagram that constitutes the outer membrane. Everything else is happening inside the mitochondrion, and this area to the bottom of the inner membrane is called the mitochondrial matrix. The reason that we have two membranes is that this space here has to make it really easy to concentrate hydrogen ions. When you have lots of hydrogen ions, something becomes really acidic. If you have strong acidity, it can damage lots of things in the cell. So you don't want the whole cell to become acidic. You want this dedicated area in the what's called the intermembrane space between the two mitochondrial membranes. You want that to become acidic 
because you're just not gonna keep anything that's acid sensitive there. Additionally, what you're trying to do is harness food energy and use that energy to concentrate hydrogen ions. The more concentrated they are in one area, the higher energy they are. And so if your area that you're trying to put them into is very small, you can very efficiently increase the concentration there. If you didn't have the outer mitochondrial membrane, you'd have this vast space within the cell and you'd be trying to use energy to pump hydrogen ions there, but they so easily diffuse that all that energy is so easily dissipated. So how do we get the energy from the food to make that hydrogen ion gradient? Well, we have three proton pumps in the mitochondrial membrane, and these are called complex one, complex three, and complex four. The reason we skip two is because there's actually a complex two that doesn't act as a proton pump. When I say proton pump, that's the same thing as saying hydrogen ion pump. A hydrogen ion is nothing other than a single proton. I told you before that the redox potential of NADH is less than the redox potential of FADH2. That means it's a stronger reducing agent. It can start more to the left than FADH2 can. In fact, we could juxtapose the electron transport chain on the diagram I showed you before of redox potentials. And as we move along from the left to the right, the electrons are moving from things that have relatively lower affinity for them to things that have relatively higher affinity for them. That means they're moving from things that have relatively low redox potentials to things that have relatively high redox potentials. As the electrons move that way, they release their energy. The final electron acceptor in this entire chain is oxygen that is going to take hydrogen ions and electrons and become water. We can think of oxygen versus water as a redox couple, and their redox potential is slightly more than positive 800. So if NADH is negative 320, it's on the far left. Oxygen is positive 816 or so, it's on the far right. FADH2 at negative 220 is coming into the electron transport chain slightly to the right of NADH. Throughout the electron transport chain, we actually have dozens of electron transfers. And that's because the proteins of the electron transport chain are actually giant protein complexes with somewhere between 11 and 40 proteins per complex. And within those proteins, we have dozens of clusters of iron and sulfur or copper and these are redox reactive metals that can gain or lose electrons. And through the iron, sulfur, and copper centers in these proteins, the electrons are gonna make one small transfer, release energy, make the next small transfer, release energy, make the next small transfer, release energy. And because we have so many tiny, tiny transfers, each one allows us to efficiently extract the energy. And then we use that energy to pump hydrogen ions 
from inside the mitochondria in the mitochondrial matrix across the inner membrane into the intermembrane space where they become a very concentrated hydrogen ion gradient. NADH donates its electrons to complex 1. FADH2 donates them to complex 2. Coenzyme Q10, symbolized here as Q, brings them to complex 3. Cytochrome C brings them to complex 4. And that's where they meet oxygen. These proton pumps pump hydrogen ions against their gradient, which has a positive delta G, and then those hydrogen ions want to flow along their gradient, which has a negative delta G. And because they have to flow through ATP synthase to get to the other side of the membrane, ATP synthase then harnesses the energy in their flow, like we talked about in the first lesson, and invests that energy into the phosphorylation of ADP to get ATP. From a nutritional perspective, we've not only seen the importance of pantothenate, which is vitamin B5 and present in the coenzyme A molecule, and niacin, which is vitamin B3 and part of NADH, and riboflavin, which is vitamin B2 and part of FADH2. But here in the electron transport chain, we see three essential minerals, iron, copper, and sulfur. And we also see coenzyme Q10. Nutritionally, it's found in a very wide array of foods because every organism has an electron transport chain, but it's found at much higher concentrations in the tissues that have really high energy demands. Think of your heart. Your heart's always beating. And if you look at foods, heart meat, the heart of an animal, is by far and away the richest source of coenzyme Q10. CoQ10 is also interesting from a medical perspective because so many people are on cholesterol-lowering statin drugs. Statins don't just inhibit the synthesis of cholesterol. They inhibit a precursor to cholesterol that is also a precursor to CoQ10. So statins inhibit our ability to make our own CoQ10, which has the potential to interfere with energy metabolism right here and that interference with CoQ10 synthesis may underlie some of the side effects of statins. All right, so this has been our overview of cellular respiration. Cellular respiration refers to any kind of energetic process that requires an inorganic electron acceptor. In the electron transport chain, oxygen is our inorganic electron acceptor. It accepts electrons to become water. And Oxygen is inorganic, meaning it doesn't contain any carbon. If we look at bacteria or other organisms, we may find examples of different types of cellular respiration that have different inorganic electron acceptors. But in human beings, to talk about cellular respiration means the energetic processes that are dependent on oxygen. Now, you notice in the TCA cycle, we don't actually directly use oxygen. The reason that we put the TCA cycle in with the electron transport chain is for reasons that we'll talk about in the next lesson, the TCA cycle is very tightly regulated to always be on when the electron transport chain is on, to always be off when the electron transport chain is off. And the reason that I started with cellular respiration, once again, is because these are the processes that no matter what we're eating, whether it's carbohydrate, protein, or fat, 
they all come in through different metabolic pathways that lead into this one. And what we talked about today is what they share in common. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn. You can also find them on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn. You can also find them at my website at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash biochemistry, where you can also find the slides and transcripts for each lesson. All right, I hope you found this useful, and I hope you enjoyed it. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.